listening to the Autistic Tea Party Podcast. I'm Malia. And I'm Kat. And together, we will be your hosts as we explore some of the hottest topics in the autistic and neurodivergent communities at large. We'll be speaking with parents, therapists, experts, educators, and more to dig into the more nuanced discussions being had in and about the disabled community. So join us as we sip and spill the tea. This is the Autistic Tea Party Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Autistic Tea Party. Autich has so many exciting events happening this summer, one of which is an anti-racism workshop titled Intro to Doing the Work, Anti-Racism in a Racist Society. Join educators Z, Sadie, and I on Saturday, June 12th at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This workshop is designed to expand your anti-racism vocabulary and learn important concepts in critical race theory. You will also hear stories from BIPOC creators. For more information and to sign up, see the link in the show notes or visit awteach.com. We can't wait to see you on June 12th. We are so excited today to talk with Kahukura from More Than One Neurotype. She is also on TikTok as I am Kahukura. And we're going to be talking about being an educator, but we're also going to be talking about some parenting things, parenting autistic children, being an autistic parent, and the topic of pathological demand avoidance, which is not talked about enough. We are so excited to have her with us today. So without further ado, here's the episode. Today we have Kahukara with us. If you want to just introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, kia ora. Um, I'm Kahukura and I am on TikTok. I'm I am Kahukura and um, I'm predominantly on Facebook um, under the name More Than One Neurotype, which is where I do a lot of my kind of educational um sharing experiences and that type of thing. I'm mostly over there. So yeah, I'm a late diagnosed ADHD autistic uh, adult. And more recently, I'm realizing I also have a PDA profile. Um, I'm a mother of two kids and I'm based in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Well, welcome and thank you so much. We're so excited. We've been looking forward to talking to you for like so long. How do you manage or work through internalized ableism, especially since you've been diagnosed? Um, yeah, it's really hard. I guess I don't, I don't give myself judgment when it arises. I just try and notice it, notice the feelings that I'm having, notice what things are coming up. And um, yeah, when I do, it's just kind of you know, where is that coming from? What is that? Let's let's look into that. And um, of course, we're all going to have internalized ableism. We can't not. We're in a world that kind of conditions us to be that. So, yeah, we're not we're not bad people if we if we notice it in ourselves. But it's just really important to do something about it. Mm-hmm. 
What ways does internalized ableism show up for you, if you're comfortable talking about that? Um, I think for me, the most obvious one is that I had a really difficult relationship with the word disabled. Mm. Um, and what, you know, what did that mean? And what is this word? Um, how does it apply to me? And the feelings of the feelings I would get when it was suggested that it applied to me. So I've really had to um, work on acknowledging that, um, you know, being autistic and ADHD, that does, that does cause me to have a disability when I'm trying to operate in the, the world as it is. And that's been really hard. Um, and even to advocate for myself, if I'm, you know, say I'm trying to pick up some medication and, and be like, can you please just send me a text to say that it's ready because I have a disability that makes me calling you and and organizing myself really, you know, it makes that really hard. Mm -hmm. And even that was like a major step. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's the, more, the most obvious one I can think of. Yeah, I think that's a big thing for a lot of people is once you, like a big part and a good part of unpacking internalized ableism is recognizing the areas that we can like self-advocate and so whether it is a thing like, you know, asking for text notifications or, you know, even something as simple as like wearing headphones, you know, when you go out and about and things like that, it's like, I noticed for myself, because I'm a late diagnosed person as well, that like, it genuinely never occurred to me that I could just do those things. Like, yeah, and that, that we can actually ask for them yeah. and we're, we're good enough, we're good enough. Exactly. Or disabled enough to ask for them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we yeah. Didn't, uh, yeah, we weren't the level of disabled that like, and I still think find myself unpacking that where like, you know, I make communication cards for people and yet I have yet to use those myself mm. and not because I couldn't benefit from it or, but it just that I always inside, internally, I'm like, well, I'm not like, the, I'm not the person who would need this the most. I don't need this resource. Uh, but the more that I dissect that, I'm like, well, how much of the time am I forcing myself to speak when I've already pushed past my limits? And then, you know, it ends up being a meltdown in and of itself, you know, because I'm pushing past the limits that I'm putting on myself, you know? So that's, yeah. It's an interesting. Yeah, I was totally, I was totally sorry. I'm in ADHD. Like oh, I just kept fine. dropping and coming in. But um, <laughs> I was actually thinking about your communication cards last night because I had a massive day, went and had some therapy, which sometimes you feel really good after and sometimes you feel really like nailed after. Mm -hmm. And I just recognized that actually I'm not really able to speak right now. And those cards yeah. would be quite good right now because, yeah, I could force myself into it. Mm -hmm. And it was just noticing, yeah, I actually force myself into talking a lot. I make myself do mm -hmm. it a lot. Uh, and, you know, these are these things that we just, we don't even realize we do. Yeah, it's like a process of unlearning, which actually kind of leads me into one of the questions that we have on here, which is, um, as a late diagnosed person, because we kind of got into a little bit about, you know, us us having needs, but then sort of talking ourselves out of those needs, um, that we sort of after a lifetime of um, being gaslit by society or our support systems, um, what is the like sort of amount of gaslighting that you do to yourself on the regular and how do we begin to validate ourselves and our experience when we find ourselves downplaying our support needs or um, 
invalidating our own experiences. Yeah, it's so it's super hard because obviously we need to recognize that that gaslighting was very much a survival mechanism mm. because um, it's almost like if we can feel how difficult things are and really understand our challenges, that can almost be too much sometimes and it can be very, very overwhelming. Mm. And, you know, especially when we didn't even know we had different urology, um, it's like our brain just went, okay, just normalize this and make, you know, as a way of, of keeping ourselves kind of okay. Um, so, you know, that's so much wiring and so much core of ourselves that is uh, gaslighting ourselves that I think it is, um, again, with similar to the internalized ableism, it's okay to have that and recognize it and acknowledge it. Um, and create some space between where you're gaslighting yourself and and you're giving yourself a moment of pause to go, okay, I can see what's going on here. Um, because, yeah, I think we just take on that role of invalidating and reducing our experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that happens to us as, as kids and then a little, you know, a bit as adults, but then I think we do it the most in our heads. Um, yeah. And it's a super hard pattern to get out of, and I don't, I don't, I don't really have any answers of how to do it. I just know that it's gonna take time, mm -hmm. and yeah, we need to, we need to be kind to ourselves that we're gonna slip up and do it a lot. Yeah, and it's yeah. like so related to like the ways you know that we were cared for or not cared for, because like I know for a lot of people, it's like when we gaslight ourselves or like our internalized stuff comes up, it's like a form of us punishing ourselves or like hurting ourselves before our caregivers did. Yeah. And oh yeah. Like yeah. Such a stuck pattern even in adulthood. So now yeah. we get to unravel that. So it's so fun. Isn't it fun? It's good fun. <laughs> fun with you with uh, the the, the um, yeah, quotation marks heavy air quotes. with quotes yeah can you um I'm interested to know what did your journey to adult diagnosis look like uh when did you begin to sort of um notice or become aware of the fact that you are neurodivergent and what did that process and journey look like for you uh, I think like a lot of people like me in particular, uh, mothers in particular, um, the wheels just start falling off mm -hmm. and we don't realise until we have children uh, what our coping strategies actually are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would always come home um, from school as a teenager, as an adult who was working, I would come home and lay on the couch like a couple hours. Uh, I would have my own rules around not doing two social events in a weekend. Like I would do something either on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. um, there was just so, there were just so many coping strategies in there that I hadn't realized until they all got taken off me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All of them were just gone. And, you know, I do wonder, and it's not saying that um, postpartum depression isn't a thing because it very much is, but 
for me that never really explained like I knew I something was going on and I wasn't kind of feeling right or myself and I think I was actually in autistic burnout and I wonder how much Mm -hmm. autistic burnout plays into a lot of what happens after we have um, babies Um, and so yeah but I you know threw myself into motherhood and just kept going and going and going Um, but yeah after five or six years um, I just couldn't keep doing that and um, yeah it was getting to a point where um, it's hard to describe knowing that people won't see this but it's almost like you have this bandwidth of uh, space where you can handle things Mm-hmm. And recovery really increases that space, but motherhood kind of takes it and shrinks it, and it gets smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I was noticing is the things, the things that I could do, the things that I could um, handle were getting less and less and less. Um, so yeah, it was like, what is going on? Why why can't I? And I um, often say that my biggest thing was the dishwasher was clean and full of clean dishes and I would just stand there staring at it wanting to to put them away mm-hmm. but I just couldn't and I would stand there for like half an hour just willing my body to to unload the dishwasher and not be able to do it um and yeah that I was like what is going on I just I I don't understand and of course you know you go to the doctor and they say oh it's anxiety or depression or whatever but that never really I was like it's not that um so that was kind of the beginning and then I think a lot of you know on social media a lot of stuff particularly on Facebook because I live my life on Facebook uh there were lots of things going around about, I think, Samantha Croft with her checklist. Mm, mm-hmm. And I was like, um, yeah, no, this is me. Is this not, yeah. is this, like, is this not what? <laughs> um, and, yeah, really t- it, took a, it took a couple of years because you kind of see this information go in front of you, you right. read it, and it takes time to digest and you kind of go back and forth. And then, in, And then I think you get to a point where it becomes – Am I autistic becomes a special interest that you become hyper fixated on. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like yeah. deep diving, you're joining the groups, you're watching all the YouTube channels, uh, mm-hmm. reading books and all of that stuff. So, yeah, and then I, I kind of paused after a bit of that and thought, if, if, if am I autistic as my special interest, that's probably a sign that I am autistic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think neurotypical people do this. Um, so, yeah, and that was. That was so that was definitely over a few years. It was a process. And I think because like we talked about, we've got all these layers of stuff that we have to kind of work through before we're ready to receive that information. Um, and then, you know, before we can, because I was self-identified for, you know, I started my page when I was self-identified and had that for quite a while. Um, like I was only professionally diagnosed July last year. Yeah. So um, I had been out as autistic, um, didn't necessarily know I was ADHD um, until lockdown happened. And then, um, you know, my excuse had always been I just didn't have enough time to do things and I had time and <laughs> stuff still wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, so I was like, OK, it became really I think a lot of people felt that too, that uh, lockdown, because for us that didn't not rubbing it in your faces, but lockdown for us wasn't that long. 
like it was a few, it was oh, like a fair. few months. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was it was really um, seeing that during lockdown and getting my diagnosis in July. Um, so yeah, relatively recent, but also I'd kind of been in those spaces and listening and learning for a number of years. And I love the um, the aspect that you brought up about postpartum uh, mood disorders or things of that nature uh, and whether or not, like, I mean, obviously, of course, it can be both at the same time. Both can be true. But I I was reading a book and I can't remember the name of it at this point, but they said um, when they mentioned that like the infant stage is like the hardest. And I really resonated with that personally, just because I think there is so much sensory overload <laughs> that comes with like, like you said, like your ability to recover, your time to recover disappears, your ability to have quiet gone your ability to not have to smell diapers out the window you know and so you're just kind of like inundated at every turn with sensory overload and I think that that can at least for me autistic burnout and meltdowns like they look pretty similar to anxiety and depression um and I think it can make it really hard for people to determine what's what and can also can also almost extend like that process of um you know because we do get misdiagnosed for so long um as you know someone with generalized anxiety or depression or bpd or you know anything under the sun but autism and like motherhood sometimes can act as something that prolongs that as well um, and I noticed the same thing happens during quarantine. You know, my child was going to school. And so I had about eight hours a day that I was able to regulate and to catch up on things at my own pace and have quiet and take naps. And then now for over a year, it's been, I have not had a moment alone in yeah. over a year. So <clears throat> I deeply relate to you on that. And that kind of um, leads us in screen time, <laughs> particularly in COVID. Um, you know, for moms, like screen time for a lot of us uh, as neurodivergent moms, moms in general, and for neurodivergent children, screen time is really something that is actually very regulating. But that idea can be very controversial because a lot of the current narrative is that, you know, it's it's causing, you know, problems with children's cognition and their development and their development of social skills and, you know, all of these negative things that you hear about it. But can you explain a little bit, because I loved um, on your Facebook page where you said uh, you were talking about how it's ableist and innately alienates a lot of neurodivergent people. And then kind of like what some of the actual positives are of uh, screen time for children and for neurodivergent people. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, yeah, I think um, definitely there is this big thing about screen time being bad. Um, I honestly don't really understand it. I think, um, like, that's not to say that we can't get hyperfixated and be on, like, our phones and stuff like that, and, and children can do that too. Um, and I think it doesn't help that some of our children have interception challenges, which means that they can go on a screen and not eat 
and not drink and not go to the toilet. I mean, I'm an adult and I can struggle with that too. <laughs> um, also, as a kid before screens, I also did that. So you know, that's not a that's not a screen problem. That's like a, that's that's an interception thing. Um, but in terms of how screens can help, um, you know, the world basically as soon as I leave the house, I'm compromising. Mm. Uh, I'm being inundated with things and and sensory input and expectations and demands um, that go against what I'm okay with. Mm -hmm. um, and the same with our children, right? So, I mean, and some of them, especially if they're sensory seekers, maybe they can handle it a bit more. But for sensory avoidant people um, and sensory avoidant children, you know, everything is hard when they leave the house and they can, you know, they handle it to a certain extent, but it's still more load on them. When you're sitting on a screen, like you're in control, which is a lot of things that children don't have. They don't get to control much. So they can control things. They are in charge of what they're, you know, within a certain extent, they're in charge of what they're doing in a game, what they're playing, what they're watching. Um, there's not a bunch of demands on them. There's not a bunch of expectations. Um, they're really being able to yeah, explore and do what they want to do on their own terms in a way that doesn't have so so much of a, you know, it's not making them compromise as much. Um, so, yeah, we definitely use it um, for recovering. Like when we go out, it's just mm -hmm. we come back home and it's screens to help kind of regulate and recalibrate um, and also for learning and like there are so many, especially things like Minecraft, like Minecraft mm -hmm. is is amazing. And if you've got children that aren't necessarily readers and writers, right. um, they have or they don't like drawing, you know, they have this ability to create and express themselves um, in ways that they're not able to off a screen. So I think it really it really takes away a lot from them when we don't allow them to have that that way of expressing and, you know, even socialising with other people, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Children can quite often, you know, they'll they'll connect with each other on games and then play and then talk and, and yeah, it doesn't look like playing a game of something outside face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just one way and that way gets shown as the best way or the the most correct way. But, yeah, that really ignores that some kids just aren't into that. And, yeah, some kids really thrive with screen time and learn a bunch of stuff and, and love learning facts and the things that can come out of children's mouths when they've been watching nature documentaries, for example. Yeah. Like, it's yeah, it's really awesome. I think it allows for like uh, a level of parallel play too, which I think is really important yes. for a lot of children because as a parent, you know, like I may, you know, like I avoid Minecraft because I hyperfixated on that. Like, like I started playing that with my daughter and then I was just like, no, like, because I mean, it's like the, the satisfaction that you get from building like perfect squares in that game is like God level. So it just basically is all consuming for me. But she also loves to just show me what she's built and show me how she interacts with like her world that she's created. 
And the amount of creativity that you can see and that they share with you, even just by sitting beside you, you know, it, it, it provides like a, a level of parallel play and for a way for them to share their inner workings and their inner wrongs with you. And uh, I think Minecraft's amazing for that. I love, I stand Minecraft. <laughs> and I mean, I don't like, I don't, that, that sort of stuff doesn't interest me at all, but um, you know, my kids love it. And um, yeah, so I'll have, you know, I have a child that loves creating and doing, um, I guess doing, what do you, what would you call them? Like playing in survival and really playing it like that. And then yeah. another child that loves um, making nice houses, selecting, selecting the outfits that the people are wearing is very, very yeah. important. Like that's the most important thing to them. Yeah. Um, so it's been super interesting seeing how there are so many open-ended ways that yeah. it can be used. But yeah, you're right. It's almost like it's a connection thing where, yeah. um, here's my thing that I'm into. And if you want to connect with your kids and they're into to games or Minecraft, there's, there's nothing like sitting down and letting them explain to you. And then they're like, yeah, this is awesome. And it's a really yeah. nice thing you can do with them. Yeah. I <laughs> love the dialogue, but I <laughs> want to talk about PDA so bad. Um, yes, so because the first time that I saw anything about pathological demand avoidance and um, like that profile of autism was on Facebook. It's there's only one person I know of on TikTok who talks about it. But after I started reading about it, I was like, it was literally like seeing my whole childhood and a lot of memories that I didn't <laughs> that I thought that were not there anymore like flash before me and I was just like oh my gosh like this person like just told me all about myself and like they don't even know me and how like why isn't this a part of all of the other literature that is you know you can throw a rock and it'll land on you know whatever um most people you know when they um, read about autism or what they know about it is that we are as children, you know, maybe we're, we're really quiet and, and weird and not that we're, we're not known for just saying no to everything and, or like having like, just like the automatic no <laughs> is not mixed into that. So can you talk a little bit more about that and yeah, sure. Um, so I'm I'm fairly new to PDA, and um, but just that feeling that there's a demand or an expectation, and how that how that instantly brings up, like even if you want to do something, even if you were about to do something, if someone then has the expectation that you're going to do it, it, it like it ruins it. Um, and my memories of this, and I've always known I've had this. Um, like say I'm getting up to make my husband a cup of tea and if he just says, oh, could you make me a cup of tea? I'm like, nope, I was I was just about to, but you've ruined it. Nope, I don't want to do it now. You can do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, nope. 100%. Um, or a lot as a teenager, which would come up, would be I'd be walking up to put the dishes away and then my mum would be like, oh, you need to make sure you put the dishes away. And I'd be like, ah, you've ruined it now. I was about to like it's it's just that feeling that I knew that now that someone had asked me to do something they pretty much ruined my ability to do it 
and this internal struggle of I want to do it, but now that I can feel it, mm. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, and that's always been there and something that I've found difficult to navigate because at the same time, I'm very much a fawning people pleaser. Mm. Um, and they both talk a lot about how that actually does fit within the PDA because although it may appear on the outside that you're going along with stuff, that is also you being able to control how people are perceiving you and controlling the idea. Because the whole thing is that you don't like, uh, well, from my understanding, is that feeling of not being in control is very uncomfortable. So mm. if even if you're fawning and people-pleasing, there's still an element of you being under in control because you know that your your way of doing that is getting the outcome that you want, which is, I guess, keeping everybody happy. But that's not really you because on the inside, you're not really being you. Um, so, yeah, and I think it's one of those things that with ADHD and autism, I guess I read a lot. With PDA, I haven't really read so much. I've more just watched people talk about it. Um, yeah. For me, that's how I learn best. And there's all sorts of things like being really interested in human behavior, um, having that really social aspect um, and being able to kind of see through the levels of bullshit um, was really resonated with me because I've never felt like I have fit into any particular community, even the supposed autism community in air quotes. Um, I don't really think there is a community. There's just a group of people that um, – uh, autistic uh, mm-hmm. and you know it doesn't feel cohesive like everybody gets on at all um, <laughs> and then with the ADHD community I think uh, you know I don't really fit in there because I can feel uh, as an autistic person I can feel some stuff going on in there that doesn't sit yeah. right with me either and I've always kind of oh, put yeah. it down to oh, I'm just both so that's why yeah. I don't fit in but apparently it is a very common PDA experience to not fit into communities because as soon as there's communities there's expectations on how to behave and we don't like that no not at all (laughs) not at all one of the one of the things about it that that I've seen Christy talk about um you know because she does talk a lot about uh being a parent and how like she changes the language and how she talks to her children so that it's not, you know, uh, don't forget to do the dishes. She uses other language that's kind of like asking the question so that they'll answer and like give asking questions in a way that like keeps them in like, I don't know if this is the right word, but like in the power position of being able to say yes or no, or like in a position where they're like, well, it was my idea first, so of course I'm going to do it, Mm -hmm. um, instead of making it a demand, um, which I do like, and also recognize in myself that like, sometimes if people bring anything up, like I'm just going to be like, no, I see what you're doing, and I don't like that either. So (laughs) don't even try to be nice to me about it, just know that if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. So, so like I love I love that she has like these techniques, but then like at the same time, and like you know, maybe it's because I'm an adult, so like you know, I didn't have that opportunity as a child, but I'm like, no, people should probably just like not talk at all. Maybe maybe that would be helpful. 
it's like, yeah, even with the techniques, it's like I can still see what you're doing. And it just made me think of, um, you know, when I was a kid at school, like when I was like five and they'd give you these books to read and um, they were just stories of nonsense. Yeah. Like to me, they just like, they just, they had no purpose. And I remember thinking, I know why you're getting me to read this book. It's because you want me to read. You're just trying to manipulate me. You're just trying to get me to read. Um, like I could see the demand. So I was like, I, I don't want to read that book because you you were just wanting me to read for the sake of it. Um, mm -hmm. I can see through you, um, you know, and yeah, just stuff like that. Of We're very, we're very, even like reverse psychology and stuff like that. That doesn't really work on mm -hmm. these kind of kids because they're like, I know you're dying. It's like it's you have to be so direct. If you're if, like, if you're talking yeah. to someone with a PDA profile, like if you're not going to be direct, just stop. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like this is a sugar-free zone when you're talking to the PDA people. Yeah. 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 And that, but then equally, like we're all like trauma and stuff. So then we all get like rejection sensitivity. So it's so hard yeah. to navigate. <laughs> yeah. How did we all make it here is what I'm wondering at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> How are we all still here? Because that is like, it just makes you wonder if there's a level of like, like this profile that is not being extended or understood as like symptomology of autism and rather just sort of like a pathological, like, oh no, they just have to disagree about everything because they're just, you know, being rowdy and out of hand and like they're an untenable child. And when you think about it, right, like imagine pathologizing something because you just only do stuff you want to do. Mm -hmm. Like how, like what, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, this child is so disobedient and doesn't do everything that I tell them to do or, yeah. you know, will, will always resist. And like imagine, like it, it just seems so strange turning that into and pathologizing that into some form of deficit. Like I think it's fantastic. Like it's hard to navigate when you're trying to parent that. Um but yeah, I think it's I think these tend to be the children that do school refusal as well because they're just like not I mean in saying that my I was more of a fauna and I, I think uh you know social gender roles really play a part of that because really all little girls are meant to act a certain way in our society. Um but yeah, um you either have the the fawning, which was my thing of I am just going to figure out what a teacher wants and I'm going to do what they want to do because in a way like that's me really controlling the situation. Um, or yeah, you have the children who are like, no, nah, I'm not going. And I mean, we've we've never done any type of child care or anything like that. My children are all um, homeschooled uh, because I know that they would be totally resistant to doing anything. Um, it just wasn't worth, it just wasn't worth even trying. And it seems to me like all the therapies and the possible heavy air quotes, your solutions or coping mechanisms um, with like a PDA profile are things that are compliance centered because at the end of the day, it's still not about understanding where the behavior is coming from, why the behavior is present but the outcome being compliance, which, as we all know, as disabled people, is actually a really dangerous and kind of slippery slope to teach your children. Um, 
Because in a lot of ways, when when that is when we are compliance minded, it can teach us, especially as autistic people, to bypass our own inner safety uh, mechanisms and the things that would occur to us to be like, mm, this feels wrong. But um, after a lifetime of being, you know, told to comply with authority figures or things like that, it can actually put us in really vulnerable situations that can be dangerous down the road. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and like when you say compliance, you know, like there's that. And it's also when I hear it, it's like, sure, we want people want kids to be compliant to a certain degree to accomplish certain tasks. But I don't hear the question of like how like how controlling are you actually being Mm -hmm. in this? Like how how much of this desire to have a compliant child as in comparison to like how controlling you are, like how, how much of this task needs to be done in a certain way, whose standards are these and why are they here in the, in the first place? The why. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of, um, a lot of the conflict and tension that can come up between parents and children is, how do I get them to do this? Um, and, you know, and that's, whenever someone asks me, how do I get them to do this? I'm like, you don't, you learn more about their brains and then you do some reflection on why that's triggering for you. And then you grow as a person and then you learn to like figure that out and be okay. Because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not just, um, you know, especially as children get older, the you realize as they get older with each stage, the amount of control you had, mm-hmm. you think, oh, I was actually more able to control them. And that's slipping. And now I have to up my game. And, and by up my game, I don't mean learn how to control them in a different way. More Now I have to really work on some kind of um, collaborative parenting where we're working together as parent and child rather than I'm telling you what to do and you're listening to me. Um, and a lot of people, that is such a foreign concept for them because it's all based on I told you to do something and you're not doing it and I now need to figure out how to make you do it. Well, you know, children are their own human beings with their own personalities and you're just going to get more friction if you're determined to figure out, well, you're either going to break them or have a whole lot of tension. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's – Parenting is all about whenever someone has um, stuff they're trying to figure out with their child, um, and that's not to say that because I know a lot of the narrative can be, well, your child's only acting like that because of how you parent them. Like it's not ADHD, it's bad parenting, that sort of thing. And that's not what I'm talking about. It's more if if they're acting in certain ways and it's getting like there's lots of meltdowns and there's lots of conflict as parents, we're most often the source of that because of how we are parenting. And it's a hard mm-hmm. pill to swallow, but mm-hmm. when you're tearing your hair out going, what is going on with this child? The answer is usually in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like having that kind of collaborative relationship with a child, any children, if you're like an educator, like a teacher or something, I feel like it humanizes you as an adult because this model of like controlling children, like it 
it, it separates you, you know? And it's like, it's also like, you know, as kids grow up, they're like, well, when I'm an adult, I get to do this. Mm. Um, you know, and when you're collaborating together, like there's so much more of you that's a part of that process. There's apologizing that happens when like you go too far, you know, there's, there's options there's happening. There's like, you know, this message of like, you can make this decision just because I'm the adult doesn't mean that you can't be part of it just because you're a kid. Like you can absolutely, you know, and like, you can think like kids have the ability to have very complex thoughts Mm -hmm. and, well giving them a a place to express them like it creates I don't even know it creates a lot of amazing things and And I think that feeling of hopelessness like our helplessness sorry you know where like they feel like they're at the mercy because and like you brought up with the power structure and the hierarchy between parent and child when you start to maneuver that away and I'm not saying like have a peer relationship with your child but when you move it into a place of respect where you say I do understand that you're your own autonomous person and I respect what you have to say. And obviously where it is developmentally and cognitively appropriate, but you can give them the input and things like that. And then it takes away, it gives them that intrinsic motivation and takes away that feeling of helplessness. Like they're at the mercy of the person who's in power and their choices and decisions. Yeah. And it's, I think it's so particularly for, um, you know, parents at the moment, a lot of us weren't raised this way. So we are learning alongside our children how to, even how to, you know, like regulate our feelings, even Mm -hmm. acknowledge our feelings, know our feelings. Like Mm -hmm. there's so much of this that uh, is new to us because these were never the tools that were given to us. So, um, you know, you said about apologizing, like I am by no means a perfect parent and I get it wrong a lot of the time, but something I do do is apologize. Um, and just, yeah, to know that, uh, people do make mistakes and we don't need to cut them off just because they make mistakes, you know, obviously within reason. Um, but yeah, just to really, I guess, role model that, we can make a mistake, we can apologize, and also we understand that when we have meltdowns, some stuff does just fly out of our mouth. Because I know for a lot of us, especially who are late diagnosed, I'm sure, is we've had those moments where at a point of vulnerability and overwhelm, we've done something and people just do not forgive us and they don't, you know, they don't even know, like we didn't even know it was a meltdown. They didn't know it was a meltdown. They didn't know you'd just get, oh, that's really out of character for you or whatever, whatever. But there was never really any acceptance of that. It was like, well, you've stuffed up and now you're cut. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're not going to forgive you for any of that. So, it's a, yeah, really role modelling that, that we can have these emotional outbursts um, and we can do our best to kind of manage them. But equally, that doesn't mean that um, you're not forgiven and you're a bad person. A hundred percent. That was beautifully said. Thank you. Completely agree. No, I think it's just so, you're bringing up so many important points that like, that moving towards a model of parenting that allows grace and space for emotions and feelings and restoration and um, growing, you know, as opposed to behavior compliance and um, like an innate power struggle. 
it's always gonna, I mean, it's it's interesting to look back at how we were raised and go like, how did that ever make sense to people? You know, and um, also explains like a lot of my therapy bills. And <laughs> it's really important to break those cycles. And I think it's um, the things that you are talking about and um, the way that you view things is really helping a lot of people and parents do that. And so thank you so much for that. And that's, it's really important work. You know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And it's um I mean, and that's what I'm always open about too, is that I am learning on all of this. And I yeah, like I am it's all just from experience and trial and error. Um, you know, but I still I still absolutely have my moments. And I guess that's a lot of that is because of that lack of emotional regulation, that lack of knowing myself. Mm -hmm. Um, that it can be you know, there's nothing more triggering than seeing your child do something that you got punished for. Yeah. And um, you might not even realise that that's the reason why you're snapping at them mm -hmm. um, because that takes a that takes a layer of inner work. It also takes a layer of assessing how you were raised. And I know a lot of people like to think, oh, no, it was all fine, like I had a great childhood. But, um, yeah. you know, and I, I understand that a lot of the generations before us had their own stuff and were doing the best that they can. Um, but, yeah, acknowledging that the way we were raised really didn't help us navigate our neurological identity pretty much at all, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> one thing I did want to ask you about um, that I came across on your Facebook was this idea of uh, neurodiversity washing yeah. that you wrote about. I want yeah. to ask your opinion on this because so from my perspective, I understand things like greenwashing, right, or health washing or whatever, you know, where people are like, oh, it's healthy and this and that and it's organic, but, you know, like organic can mean a lot of different things and like it doesn't mean that it's better for you so when you use the term neurodiversity washing what does that mean and how do we spot it and like why is it why is neurodiversity washing a problem um so as someone that can really struggle to find suitable things for um my children to do um there are, I guess there are kind of key things that you look for to see if it's going to suit. Um, the list is pretty small because I can tell you that the majority of things go against the neurology of neurodivergent children. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, so you can see stuff like um, things that are, there's lots of space, there's not, um, you know, like free play and that type of stuff, and, th and that's mm -hmm. all cool. Um and these things can look like they're going to be really great for neurodivergent children. And often they will say that, you know, every child is different and they're, and they're going to take, uh, you know, all children's needs into account. But often you can then see things come up that kind of go against that. So it's almost like, yeah, we've got this awesome thing. It's going to be, um, you know, accommodating for all kinds of children. But equally, um, look at me when you're talking to me. Mm -hmm. um I need you to sit still and listen to this um even you know even so far as saying stuff like whole body listening yeah yeah that is just so against um that's so against the neurodiversity movement that's really yeah. not acknowledging that different people listen in different ways um so yeah I think it's hard because 
especially I think I'm in a privileged position where I am around my children a lot. So I very like I'm I find it easy to pick up on small subtle things. Plus I'm always around. So when there are interactions or things happening and activities, I'm there to witness it. Um, so yeah, there can be things where um Oh, yeah, I'll say it. Where there's an expectation of a handshake and staring someone in the eye to say good morning yeah. or, or, or say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And that's really, and like being able to see um, children be really uncomfortable with that, mm-hmm. bringing that up and that not being listened to, um, you know, that's really, that's saying that something is uh, accepting of all children, but it's not accepting certain children. So it's it's super frustrating, um, and yeah, there are there are activities that um, may sound like they're going to be fine, but it's not really until you get there and you see what they're act, what they're actively practicing mm-hmm. um, that you realise actually that's that's not that's not actually inclusive at all. I would say that the majority of things are not inclusive. It's very hard to find an activity that is inclusive of all kinds of brains, which is super frustrating. Super yeah. frustrating. Yeah. So the labels themselves can be really misleading, and that's something parents should look out for because it can put your child in a position where you might feel more comfortable, you know, dropping them off at a built for everybody class and then have them experience the same level of ableism and exclusivity that they would in, you know, what we would consider just like general. Yeah. And, and our children won't always be able to um, articulate what it is that is making them feel uneasy. Right. Right. Um, Because I mean, even as an adult, we can be in certain situations and then leave and be like, ah, it just didn't really feel good, and I, I don't even really know why, and it can take time to process. Um, so, yeah, it, it is really hard, and I think neurodiversity really has become a buzzword. I know that our media here in New Zealand has started using it so much, particularly during April, and they were using it incorrectly, but it was like, yeah, we're going to really show, similar to greenwashing, we're going to really show that we're um, – that we understand this and we're, we're using this new buzzword, but it just it's just empty. Um, if you're not listening to, you know, if someone who is um, autistic brings up something about an aspect of an activity that is harmful for neurodivergent children and you don't listen to them, then what are you even doing? <laughs> You know, like there's your there's your first there's your first task. Are you going to listen to an autistic person about what's harmful about um harmful to autistics and if the answer is no then like you're just yeah it's just a facade yeah so another thing that's been kind of interesting um in the autistic community is that um i know you're familiar with the idea of toxic positivity and it's a problem universally in a lot of different areas in people's lives one area we do see this show up in is in the autistic community, uh, the ADHD community, where we do hear you know, the superpower rhetoric, um, where, you know, this is like my superpower and I can do X, Y, Z because of this, um, which is fine and great and amazing that people feel that way. 
but there is also people that are more disabled and people who don't view their disability that way for a number of reasons. And one being it's not socially safe for them. It's not safe at home for them to feel those things. Um, they are more disabled. Uh, things are less accessible to them. It, the list can go on forever. Um, and that sort of superpower label can feel really uh, exclusionary to a lot of disabled people. Um, but at the same time, being proud and being okay with and embracing your neurodivergence is also something that people innately have the right to do. So where does the line cross from toxic positivity to embracing your neurodivergence? Yeah, I think, and I think this is where a lot of people outside the kind of identity perspective of being autistic. So um, you obviously have people who have that kind of medicalized view who will say, I have ASD um, and really view it in that sort of way, like it is a disorder, it's a condition. And then you've got the identity perspective, which is obviously I'm autistic. Um, and I think there is perhaps some misunderstanding that being proud of your identity, it doesn't mean that you're not acknowledging the very real challenges um, because yeah, there are very real, there are very real challenges. Uh, we can be very disabled, um, when we're autistic and or ADHD. Um, and yeah, I really feel like the tension has kind of been, is the tension tends to be from people misunderstanding that being happy about who you are doesn't mean you don't acknowledge challenges. Um, Equally, I think it's easier to have a view of our neurology as a superpower if you've got a lot of privilege, if you've got a lot of money. Like I could be doing amazing things if I had like someone homeschooling my kids and someone cleaning my house and yes. someone doing taking all that load off me, then yeah, I could it could totally be a superpower. Um and you know, the people it always seems to be the same demographic of people saying that it's a superpower, talking about it like, oh, you just need to find how to, um, yeah, how to harness your superpower and then, you know, you can really use it. But, yeah, it's it's always basically affluent white people, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I feel like the superpower conversation at times is like, a way to make disabilities palatable to like the abled gaze. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of yeah. like, yes, I have ADHD, but like, it's not that bad because I can organize my house like top to bottom. And so, you know, to somebody who doesn't have ADHD, they're probably like, oh, wow, that is amazing. Um, but at the same time in that conversation, like as amazing as that is when we are in like the crashed burnout phase of that cycle or whatever, or feeling anything else that is like the disabled part or the parts of the condition, your diagnosis that are, um, that you're not able to do like that is left out. And so these people who don't have the diagnosis are like, oh yeah, it's not that bad. It looks great. Of course we accept you now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's I guess it sort of ties in with 
everybody loves us when we're quirky and fun and yeah. like doing all the things. But, you know, as soon as you see the down, well, the downside or you see the, the burnout, you see the meltdowns, you see that, then, oh, as soon we're as not. you see the ADHD or as soon as you see the disability. Yeah. Then, you know, it's, it's not, oh, well, ugh. um, yeah. so yeah, it is. Like so can that, you go back to doing whole... the superpower stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be able to yeah, exactly. power switch on. <laughs> yeah. I mean you give me you give me a whole bunch of people to do all the monotonous stuff. Um yeah, sure. Oh like and that's the thing, I'm like, I have so many ideas, there's so many things that I could see would be awesome and would mm-hmm. do really well. But you know, I can't. I just don't, I don't have the ability to follow through with that. So, yeah, if, um, people who are doing all that successful stuff or, or capitalist successful stuff, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, I could be that too if um, if I had a bunch of support and had way more spoons, but that's not the reality that I live in. Yeah, and it seems to me that those two things are, like, inextricably entangled, like capitalism and this, like, superpower narrative because it always ties back to productivity. And the second yes. that our debility becomes such that we can no longer like perform uh, like capitalism, then that, then those are the unromantic. Those are the, those are the parts that nobody wants to hear about. You know, everybody's like, oh, I'm also, so OCD, you know, and because they like clean their house or they like to put things in certain places. And meanwhile, I'm like, I'm so OCD uh, that I am trapped in a audio loop in my head and can't leave my house. So like that's not working great for me, but super glad that uh, you know where your keys are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, to- and even um, like yes, I have a bunch of information on my special interests, and yep, like I'll help you and talk to you about a lot of that stuff. But as soon as I say something awkward or inappropriate, yeah, oh, you don't like that anymore. Ah, oh, so I find um, yeah, people almost like harvest the the palatable parts of us yeah Mm -hmm. but that's that's really not full inclusion and acceptance like you you know you have to you have to also accept me when I just say awkward things at at an appropriate time (laughs) yes or when something you said five minutes ago is now something I'm scripting with like I'm sorry but it was great we said a great thing now I want to say it so now you're here a hundred times Exactly. And also like what you said about like, this is my reality. Like I want to do all these things, but like, I don't have the spoons and I don't have the support or the access to be able to be in a place to do that. And that is not always a complaint. Sometimes that's just the reality and that that's also okay. Mm -hmm. And like some people can't accept that. They're like, you know, toxic positivity coming in like no 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 just change your mindset or you know no no like uh you know and then and then trying to get you to do hire a coach you know or whatever like also like did you not hear the part about the access um no like you know it is hard for I think even you know maybe even a fellow person who has the same diagnosis to Sometimes just sit with that with you mm-hmm. in that reality sometimes. 
Yeah, I think too. Um, I think too. You've got other aspects like uh, if you don't have a whole bunch of colonization in your ancestry, well, you're already not dealing with a bunch of intergenerational trauma. Like, wow, what a load to not have. Sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I think it is so intrinsically tied with, uh, I mean, ableism is from racism and white supremacy. You know, I mean, I know in in our culture, um, yeah, I mean, we we viewed things so differently. We didn't need to have um, we didn't view autistics as a bad thing uh, or a deficit. They were the people who would see things that other people couldn't see. You know, um, a word for it would be a tohunga, so like a, a kind of a spiritual leader or like a, you know, all lots of indigenous cultures have a different word for it. Um, so they would be the ones that would notice all these patterns and that have that kind of. Uh, detailed memory and that they'd, they'd know all these things and they were the tohunga they were the people who would um yeah be respected and they wouldn't be they wouldn't be out in the fields doing all the mundane stuff they'd be doing all this like other higher level um kind of spiritual deeper things because that's they would recognize that that was their gift that they had um so, you know, a lot of that got taken away. Even, you know, we say the whole looking people in the eye thing, like that is such a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of these standards, um, you know, and often people don't want to hear it, but it always just comes down to racism. Mm-hmm. It sure does. It's the root of a lot of things. Mm. Just ties back to racism, white supremacy. <sighs> Not a deep subject at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not, not at all. What is something that you would say to, since we've talked a lot about parenting and children, you know, these, these collectives or schools or people who want to create or who think that they're creating these inclusive spaces, um, but they're not, what is something that you wish that you could say to them? Stop and listen to the actual people who it's for. Like it just seems, it's sad that that would not be on the forefront of um, of their minds, but like even recently I've seen that there was an event that was, you know, how to help uh, neurodivergent learners uh, and they even said neurodiverse learners. And I was like instantly oh, like, no. see, you haven't even got the word right. Um, <laughs> oh, no. So what else have you got wrong? But yeah, like how do we how do we help neurodivergent learners? And there was no one who was neurodivergent talking there. It wasn't organized by neurodivergent people. You know, how can you talk about uh, ADHD children and autistic children when you don't have anyone who's ADHD or autistic talking about it, uh, learning from it like, yeah, it's so it's it just shows how far we have to go that having us be the people who lead our own things is seen as not the default. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have the people 
who have the, like, if you're not listening to the autistic people, the ADHD people, the people who have the diagnosis that you're trying to help, and you have no understanding, no background of learning any anti-racism, anything, you're not going to help anybody. No, like, I mean, you're going to feel you good are. about yourself. Yes. You're going to pat yourself on the back and be like, so well, many. isn't it amazing? Because I'm helping the children. Mm-hmm. But like, we can all see what that is. Yeah. I had a friend say something that was really interesting about that dynamic, whether it is in a racial situation or neurotypicals versus neurodivergent folks or able bodied people or, you know, thin people versus fat people that there is like a referee like dynamic that happens like neurotypical people see themselves as like referees of like our communities and our experiences and that they essentially like we play with the outline that they give us the rules that they give us they're the ones that make sure that we play by those rules And you see it play out in like racism and in any of the isms, any of the phobias, where it's sort of like whatever the social, cultural, political norm is, that we essentially like the people who are, you know, making these classes for kids that are, you know, supposedly inclusive or inclusive spaces, then a lot of the times they're not actually going for inclusivity, but rather more control and to act as a referee to our experiences that's so true I like I like that because yes yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense um dictating how we even yeah referee thank you I like that (laughs) that was B thanks B (laughs) (laughs) we love B we love B shout out to B but that yeah. was uh, that was just like a big clarifying moment for me. And I can view it through the lens of certainly like not like a racial lens for myself, but even when it comes to like fatness and neurodivergence and things like that, where it's like really the people, the oppressors, the people in power referee how we even are able to experience spaces where they're supposedly created for our freedom. Like they still control our rules. They still control those spaces because they've given it to us. They go like, here's your little sandbox and you get to play in the sandbox and like, enjoy that. And that should be good enough. Like, I really do wonder how much, like for me, if I'm trying to learn something, I listen, I go listen to the people who have that experience. That's just always been how it is. And I don't know if that's kind of like a autistic PDA thing where I'm really interested in people so like people watching and really you know paying attention to what people are saying so I can understand them before I even have an opinion or partake in things um so that's yeah I don't know whether it ties in with that but yeah to me I just think is that like a deficit in uh neurotypicalism where they just don't know how to listen and learn from other people um, because that just feels like something that I automatically do. Why, why wouldn't, like, of course you would go listen to people if, um, about a subject. You'd go to the people that have that experience. Um, it may be, yeah, that's part of their deficit is they just don't seem to know how to do that. 
Yeah. We should call it neurotypical disorder. NTD. Oh, totally, totally. It's part of their, they can't they can't fixate on anything, and they just don't know how to listen and learn. The neurotypical entitlement <laughs> disorder. <laughs> I like That's it. the one. <laughs> it's beautiful. I think we created something today here. <laughs> this <is> good. <laughs> it's a thing now. It's a thing. Uh, I can run some, um, I can do like some educational social stories for them if they really want to figure out how to like manage and overcome that. Yeah, but let's make sure never to consult them on it because like we all know that that would be. (laughs) Yeah, it should definitely avoid gluten because you know that's part of it too. (laughs) When all the things that are being said to us come out of passive aggressively in jokes. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) LOL, just kidding, neurotypicals, you're fine, huh? For now, yeah. For now. I love this. Well, initially we had um, the topic of self-care in mind when we were talking with uh, Kahukura, and I could not be happier with the direction that it actually took. Like, I feel like we covered some serious ground and stuff that... um, isn't talked about a whole lot. How about you, Malia? Oh, the same. It was like the conversation took a left turn, but like in the most amazing direction. And it was like such an exciting and needed, need much needed, productive. I feel like that's the ugliest word to use to describe it, but I was captivated by it. But it was also such a validating conversation, mm-hmm. you know, like. Every time that I talk about or hear about PDA, I just, it's like I find out so much more about myself and and life and the world makes a little bit more sense. And for that aspect alone, I'm super grateful that we got to talk to Kahukura today. It was amazing. Amazing. Well, we hope you listeners liked it. And if you have the time and would like to, please leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this so that we can bring you more bonus episodes. And uh, if you go to Anchor or um, Awteach.com, you can go to our podcast and leave any questions that you have for Kahukura and uh for us and we can incorporate them into q a episodes so that could be your chance to be on the podcast yourself so thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week Teach has been hard at work to bring you some of our greatest content yet. Join us this summer for 12 weeks of free and brilliant webinars every Wednesday starting June 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. When I tell you that you're not going to want to miss a single talk, I'm not saying that lightly. We've got therapists, educators, parenting experts, and more. So head to allteach.com now to see the lineup and get your tickets to the event. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as we had making it. For more information and resources, please visit awteach.com. That's A-U-T-E-A-C-H.com and join our mailing list to stay in the loop about updates and events. We look forward to bringing you a new episode next week. Until then, this has been the Autistic Tea Party.